Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I just finished talking with Lisa Stevenson about her wonderful new book, Life Beside Itself, Imagining Care in the Canadian Arctic. This came out in 2014 with the University of California Press. Now, this is an extraordinarily thoughtful and very evocative study of the Canadian Arctic. And in particular, it explores forms of care. And this includes biopolitical forms of care um, in the context of tuberculosis and suicide epidemics among the Inuit, but also other possible forms of care that might emerge from thinking about others calling to others, engaging with others, listening to others in a way that doesn't implicitly or explicitly force those others who we're engaging with and living with to occupy particular forms of life and particular kinds of identity. What if we were able to care for one another and listen to and call one another in a way that embraced the possibility of being multiple things at the same time and not necessarily being anything concretely. So this is a book that's uh, really, really wonderful in its exploration of what we might consider to be the history and ethnography of medicine and medical care bodies, but also opens up a way of thinking more broadly about care, about listening, about the voice and voicing, about what an image is, um, sort of a sonic image, visual image, verbal image, and what it might look like to think and live with images in a new way. So if you are interested in the history of medicine, the history of tuberculosis, the history of suicide, the history of and with the Canadian Arctic, and the ethnography of all of these things, this is absolutely a book for you. And even if you don't feel yourself pulled explicitly to one of these fields or objects of study, but you're interested in a book that explores different possibilities of living and knowing and being with each other. It's also a book for you. It was such a pleasure to read the book and also to talk with Lisa about it. And I hope you enjoy. Thanks very much for listening. I'm here to talk with Lisa Stevenson about her new book, Life Beside Itself. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Lisa, thanks very, very much, first of all, for writing such an amazing book and also for making time to talk with me about it. Welcome to the channel and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. So, Lisa, could you start us off by just giving us a a bit of an idea of what brought you to the field? How did you come to work on the Canadian North and Inuit Studies? Yeah, it's funny because I love hearing other people's stories about how they got to their field sites. But I, growing up in Canada, I was always really attracted to Arctic landscapes. So I was always attracted to the ice and snow, the rock, the sky. And so from a a really small child, I wanted to go north. And that eventually happened for me in 1992 when I was an undergraduate, and I got the opportunity to go to Iqaluit, which was um, in the Northwest Territories. It's since um, become the territory of Nunavut, Canada's newest territory, but at that time it was the Northwest Territories. And I got to go um, to Iqaluit as an intern 
uh, a community organizer with the Canadian Mental Health Association. And so I um, began my work in that way, working with a, a group of parents of the mentally ill. And we worked really hard for the four months that I was there to try to create something in the community, a space in the community for people who were dealing with or had been diagnosed with a mental illness. And so by the end of the time that I was there, we had managed to start a drop-in center for the mentally ill. And it was an incredible experience. And years later, um, when I went back to Akalawit to... um, start my field work I did an interview with the CBC and they asked me the same question that you're asking me like why did you why did you want to come north and I said something about how alive I feel in arctic landscapes how alive I feel when I'm out on the land how alive I feel when I'm um, walking along the tundra, uh, looking at the tiny flowers or in the boat on the ocean between the icebergs. And um, after the interview, I felt so um, worried. I thought, was that so presumptuous to talk about this landscape that is really not my landscape? It's not the landscape that I grew up in. But after the interview, so many people stopped me on the street oh. and said, like, you know, I've never heard anyone, a Kalunak, a non-Inuit, talk like that about the landscape, like the way that it's alive to you. And that's how I feel about it, too. And thanks for that. And so that was, I think it's something that I, I share with many with many Inuit, is this sense of the aliveness of, of the place. That's really fascinating, given um, I think some of what we'll talk about over the course of the conversation, because what it means to be alive mm-hmm. um, and how, how that means mm-hmm. is actually something that's uh, really, really interestingly explored in the course of the work. Yeah. Yeah. So the book um, that we're talking about today explores, among many other things and in many, many ways that we'll get to, uh, Canadian policies and attitudes toward the Inuit during two epidemics, the tuberculosis epidemic that stretched from the 1940s to the early 1960s, and the suicide epidemic from the 1980s to the present. And in considering these two cases and juxtaposing these two cases together, the book considers different forms of care, um, bureaucratic forms of care, other forms of care, and uses this to open out into a, an exploration of a lot of related and really fascinating aspects of you know, what it means to talk about and to talk with and to live with life. So mm-hmm. how did you come to focus on this particular topic? Can you um, talk to us a little bit about what brought you to this focus mm-hmm. for your work? Mm-hmm. Well, so as I mentioned, I first the first time I went to Iqaluit was to work with um, people who had been diagnosed with mental illnesses. And at that point, I was really interested in psychiatry and ways of, of thinking about mental illness as a form of life, as a, a, a way of being and how to enter into that and live, um, live well within it. And... Um, I went, you know, I went away as an undergraduate with a, a deep sense of of the importance of taking 
Inuit conceptions of what it is to be alive, what it is to be well, what it is to be um, human very seriously. And when I came back to do my um, dissertation research, which was about eight years later in um, 2000, you know, my question was really like within this area of mental health, what are the issues that are really pressing at the moment? And what people were really talking about or um, reeling under was the kind of sense that there was a suicide epidemic going on and almost everybody had been affected by that. There wasn't anybody who didn't know somebody who had died. And what became really clear to me at that time is that what it meant to care for somebody who was suicidal or who had experienced the suicide of a close friend or family member was really different for the different people involved in trying to do something about the suicide epidemic, that there was a kind of disconnect between the different forms of care that were being articulated and um, implemented, let's say. And so I went, oh, dear, is there something I can do to stop that from happening? Yeah, so I um, left, you know, from doing this preliminary fieldwork with this question, how do the different ways that people conceptualize what it is to be alive, what a life is, transform what it means to care for someone. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And did you, so did this study start out as a dissertation? Yeah, it so, did. So yeah. were there any kind of major changes in or transformations in the project as you moved from the form of a dissertation to the form of the book? Did the way that you were kind of conceptualizing any of these problems change at all? Uh, yeah, it became a completely different thing. And part of that was that after um, I got my PhD, I had a, a postdoc in the Department of Social Medicine at Harvard with Arthur Kleiman, Byron Good, and Mary Jo Good. And they were at the time thinking about this whole question of what a postcolonial disorder is. And at that moment, I realized that in order to think really clearly about this concept that I've been developing anonymous care, what it is to care anonymous, anonymously for the life of another human, of another person, of another human. Um, I needed to go back further in time and understand whether this had been the form of care that was also, you know, used by the Canadian state during that earlier epidemic, the tuberculosis epidemic of the 1950s. And I think that by juxtaposing these two epidemics, you could see both the continuities and the, the differences that those really came to light. And so the book is really the product of these two moments of fieldwork. My initial fieldwork, um, my dissertation fieldwork, where I worked closely with a group of about 20 Inuit youth, and then um, this later fieldwork where I worked with um, uh, survivors of the tuberculosis epidemic. 
Thank you. And maybe we'll talk a little bit um, later on about your experiences in these very different kinds of archives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in the prologue of the book, as we kind of move now directly into the body of the book, two women face each other and begin um, what um, becomes clear later in the book, uh, throat singing. Now, can mm-hmm. you maybe as a, just as this brings us into the book itself, can you bring us into the project by kind of introducing this scene. Um, how does this frame and how does this encapsulate something important for you about the work that the book is doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm interested in anthropology, in other forms of representation, other ways of expressing things. And I think I was really moved, and I think this... Um, becomes clear later in the book. I was really moved by Italo Calvino's um, short story, A King Listens. Right. I love this story. Yeah, yeah. About this very neurotic king who is sitting upon his throne, which is also potentially, you know, the toilet throne, but is so obsessed and preoccupied that he might be deposed that he can only listen to the sounds in his um, castle or kingdom as messages, as, um, n- you know, uh, nodes of meaning that someone is trying to tell him something. So the clanking outside, if the clanking outside the window occurs at one minute later than the clanking outside the window occurred the day before, it means that maybe the troops are massing and he will be imminently deposed. And Calvino asks us in this uh, short story, you know, have we forgotten to listen? Have we forgotten to the, um, the way that we listen to music? Have we lost that ability to listen when we're, you know, not listening for the meaning or the message that is being uh, projected to us? And so I'm very interested in these moments where something is being communicated but uh, it's not necessarily expressible in um, words. And so at this particular moment in the prologue, what I was so fascinated by was the everydayness of the situation and the non-exoticness of the situation. It was not an exotic moment. It was Thanksgiving dinner a very Western North American ritual where we all sit down and, um, you know, eat turkey with cranberries. And there was caribou stew too, but it still was, you know, a a very typical Thanksgiving dinner. And in the midst of this, um, two women face each other and sing for what will be the last time. It's the last time that they sing together and at the end of the singing, the young woman cries and the old woman laughs. And there is a way in which it absolutely stopped time. The stopped the Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody stopped and listened and was drawn into the song. And um, that possibility of a moment of stopping and listening is important to me as an anthropologist, as a field worker. Um, I'm, I'm interested both in trying to represent those moments and sort of watching out for them. So the book 
Um, and in the introduction, you talk about this. The book explores the role of listening, of anthropological listening, as a way to get at uncertainty. So you uh-huh. talk in the introduction about the importance in the book of taking the uncertain and the confused mm-hmm. as a legitimate ethnographic mm-hmm. object. So can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and this relates in some way to my interest in um, images and my interest in images in a really broad sense. Like you can have visual images, but you can also have sonic images. You can have word images. You can have dream images. And um I'm interested in the way that images can kind of hold intention to things that, or two or more things that in our rational minds, we would want to keep separate or would consider opposites. And so we're most familiar with this in, um, in our dreams, the way that someone can be one thing and another at the same time, can be two people at the same time. The way a place can be this very familiar place that we know, our home, but also a very foreign um, place. And Sila in the book has a dream that is, she told to me that's very important to me and that I uh, think about a lot where she says of her dead friend, you know, it was her and it wasn't her. It was her, and it wasn't her. And so these are moments that we, um, in sort of many everyday situations, we might try to resolve, well, was it her or wasn't wasn't it her? Well, you know, was at, at the beginning of the book, I start also with the image of the raven behind the house. And the raven behind the house um, might, my young friend tells me, um, you know, might be his dead uncle. And later I, in this desire for sort of like certainty, well, is it, is it really? Mm -hmm. And he says, I don't know, but it's still there. And so there isn't this move to really quickly resolve whether it was there I mean, whether it was there is clear, but whether it was his dead uncle or wasn't his dead uncle. There's this ability to sit with what I'm calling uncertainty. And, you know, it's possible that it needs another kind of name. Um, I'm still, you know, all of these uh, elements of the book, I'm still working through them. It's not like I finish a book and never think about any of it again. (laughs) But um, this ability to rest, in that space of not deciding whether it is or isn't the dead uncle, but recognizing its presence or with Sila, was it her dead friend or wasn't it the ability to have felt her presence and also allow her to be there and not be there is um, what's so important to me. And then you know, just noting that many of my Inuit friends were more comfortable with this kind of space of of not deciding than I had been trained to be in my um, most of my academic training in my childhood, right? In wanting to know, to pin down the truth, to pin down the facts, to get to the bottom of things, right? And so... You know, one friend 
told me once about a seal that had been spotted in a lake up above um, in the hills above Akalawit. And, you know, seals don't go to the lakes. They stay in the ocean. And so, of course, I was like, really? Really? Was it, was, was it, did you see it? Really? And, and, and the answer was like, I don't know. They say it's there. You know, but it wasn't, there wasn't this sense that she needed to prove it to me. <laughs> and so I started to be able to let go of this um, need to resolve things into a this or a, th- a that, an A or a B. And in so doing, I think that I entered into another way of, uh, another form of life, right? Another way of being. Mm-hmm. That's really great. I mean, I think this sort of, um, this spirit of holding multiplicity uh-huh. and, like, and you know, kind of residing there and then proceeding from there and, and really inhabiting that is really something that I think runs through the whole book. I mean, even, uh-huh. right. Even in the yeah. way, like often you talk about the, the people who you're writing about, they're your friends, right? I mean, you're uh-huh. part of it and you're writing uh-huh. about it and, and it doesn't have to be one or the other, mm-hmm. right? We don't, and in part of the, the richness of the book comes from this asking mm-hmm. us to inhabit with you, at least, you know, from my perspective as a reader, yeah, right? right. This, um, simultaneous way of thinking, um, you know, thinking multiply that may not come mm-hmm. completely naturally. Right. So no, that's, that's super great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if the mode of the book, as you put it in the introduction mm-hmm. is uncertainty, and the method of the book is attentiveness to these images, mm-hmm. as you describe. And you, I think you describe mm-hmm. your work at some point in the introduction as the work of a collector, right? Mm-hmm. A collector of images. The, mm-hmm. You talk about um, the object of the book being care. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've already mentioned, um, I think very briefly, this idea of anonymous care. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the first three chapters of the book, the first part of the book, trace um, this idea of anonymous care, as you put it, the biopolitical insistence on mm-hmm. caring anonymously. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. can you um, maybe bring us into this first part of the book by um, talking a little bit about that? For our listeners who may not be familiar with this idea, what is, um, can you just talk a little bit mm-hmm. about this notion of anonymous care? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I link this notion of anonymous care to um, the biopolitical insistence that the ultimate value, the ultimate value of our a biopolitical inflected society is life itself. So biopolitics by definition is interested in keeping bodies alive, keeping life itself going, perpetuating life itself. And so it's interested in this as, um, you know, Foucault teaches us at the, at the population level. And what becomes interesting then is the form of care that seems to follow so closely from this form of thinking about what it means to take, um, to govern a population, to care for a population, is to care for them anonymously because it doesn't really matter who you are as long as you stay alive. This is the insistence. I'm I'm arguing this is the insistence that 
biopolitics makes as it um, you know becomes a form of governance in our society. And so, um, in 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 the book, I give the sort of paradigmatic example of this that I give is the suicide hotline. And although I think there is so much, so much to respect about both the, the volunteers on the suicide hotline, the people that started the suicide hotline, um, I think uh, it is an example of this form of care and the kind of um, uh, centrality of this form of care in our our modern lives. And so the suicide hotline works by, um, you know, even when a caller might recognize the person on the other end of the line or the, uh, you know, the the volunteer hotline might recognize the caller's voice or some details. You pretend that you do not recognize that person. And so there's this insistence that the caller could be anyone and that the important thing is to keep that person alive. And the personal details, the story of the life in front of you, the who of the caller on the other end of the line are only in important insofar as they help to keep that person alive. And so there's a kind of instrumentality that ensues, um, you know, about who someone is, who someone is becomes important insofar as that it keeps you alive. And then there are all these different ways that this kind of anonymous care plays out. But the most important thing to say, I think, is that it helps me to address this really intractable kind of problem in Inuit scholarship, which is, you know, obviously, the this is this sort of like, I'm, I'm pretending to quote from Inuit scholarship, but like, obviously, um, you know, the Canadian state cared for the Inuit people, right? They were um, sending, uh, you know, uh, it's been called a form of welfare colonialism where resources were being put into the North. Um, the Canadian Inuit were put onto the same welfare system, put into the same welfare system that people in the South were, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously they cared for the Inuit people. And by tracking this kind of anonymous care and calling it a form of care, a form of having people matter, right? They come to matter within anonymous care in particular ways. I can also track the way that it was possible that this form of care collided in some sense with um, Inuit forms of care that privileged precisely um, what I talk about later in the book as the who of the name, right? It, what matters is who you are in some sense. And so um, the kind of frustration that Inuit felt, even this sense that I, I kind of tentatively track of Inuit even feeling that this form of care was murderous in some sense, can be tracked to, can be sort of related to the fact that the, 
these two forms of care, you know, are on a kind of collision course and that um, when you systematically ignore uh, the who of the name in your form of, through your, in your form of care, in some sense, you're killing off that part of what life is, right? You're killing off the life that's beside itself, that doesn't conform to life itself, the life that resides in the who of a name, etc., etc. That's right. Thank you so much. And, and these um, first three chapters really look in very different ways at, um, at well, not very different ways, but in from different angles at this idea of um, forms of care that are potentially murderous, mm-hmm. right? This idea of mm-hmm. murderous indifference. I mean, it's important that this isn't just um, a kind of conceptual thing. I mean, you show that mm-hmm. there really are um, mm-hmm. really serious stakes here. I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about um, in, in the third chapter on the suicide hotline, which was adopted um, in Nunavut in 1991, this idea of suicide prevention and its relationship to re-education, right? Mm-hmm. When we start mm-hmm. thinking in these terms of re-education, thinking mm-hmm. about the sort of racializing of this, it mm-hmm. starts potentially being very, very, very pernicious. And so this idea of um, sort of care that is based in uh, serializing of, mm-hmm. um, of uh, bodies, mm-hmm. of Inuit bodies. This is something that we, I think, see for the first time in this first chapter when you bring us into um, an index card, right? So we've got mm-hmm. these, speaking of images, mm-hmm. so we, we meet Anna, mm-hmm. who is the daughter of a grandson of an Inuit woman named mm-hmm. Kaujak. Yep, that's right. So mm-hmm. Kaujak, the only trace of Kaujak that Anna finds is this index card with Kaljak's name and something called a disc number. And this disc mm-hmm. number, sort of understanding a person as a disc number, kind of lets mm-hmm. us, you know, come out into um, this larger way of understanding people as statistics, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of larger biopolitical turn mm-hmm. towards seriality and uniformity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You invoke the, the work of Benjamin here really, mm-hmm. really interestingly. Mm-hmm. So to get us there... Can you, because this story um, is so powerful and it really is, is a story that recurs in, in different mm-hmm. ways throughout the book, mm-hmm. can you introduce um, this story of Kaljak? Um, yeah, listeners? yeah. So Kaljak was a woman living in Arctic Bay and uh, she was beginning to have symptoms of tuberculosis. She was coughing. And when the boat came, uh, that year up to Arctic Bay, she got you, know, she went on board for her examination and the doctor on board would have taken an x-ray and probably in all probability seen a spot on her lungs. And at that point, what normally happened was that people were separated. So the people who needed to stay on the ship to continue to make the journey down south would be sent to one room and the people who could leave the ship and would be able to, you know, return to their families, you know, began, you know, disembarked. Um, for some reason that year, they let Kaljak make one last journey back to her her community to Arctic Bay, and she at that time was the sole provider for her grandson 
Sakiasi. And so she had become both a mother and a grandmother to Sakiasi because his parents had passed away. And so Sakiasi remembers seeing her on the boat coming back to the mainland for this, you know, last farewell. And he still has that photograph of her from that time that he has, you know, in his living room. And then um, he remembers standing on the shore watching the C.D. Howe, which was the boat that the uh, medical patrol came up to each of the communities on. He remembers standing on the shore watching the C.D. Howe pass out beyond the furthest point. And that was the last time he ever saw his grandmother. That was the last time he heard any news of his grandmother. And in about 15 years ago, when a group of Inuits started searching for their relatives and trying to figure out what happened to the relatives who went south to be treated for tuberculosis in southern hospitals and never came back, he started searching too. And I got an email when I started doing this research on the tuberculosis epidemic from Anna, his daughter, who had tried herself to figure out what had happened to Kaljak. And as you said, the only thing she was able to find, and she found it just by chance when the um, uh, municipal offices were moving from one site to another, she just found this, these, this series of index cards with her grandmother's disc number written on it and the word dead written beside it. And, so they had been searching all this time, and she told me the only thing she knew was that at some point her grandmother, on, that on the trip from Arctic Bay to Hamilton, Ontario, her grandmother had died. It was after she had got on the train in Churchill, and she, her body had been unloaded. But the people, the Inuit who had been on the um, train with her, didn't speak enough English. Many of them were also children. And so they couldn't um, fully remember even the name of the stop where her body had been unloaded. And so both she and I have called a series of the communities um, where the train used to stop on its journey from Churchill to Hamilton, Ontario, to try to see if we could un- you know, dig something up about Kaljak. Um, so her body was unloaded, and about three months later, they received a call to say, you know, your grandmother passed away. And it was a call that came to Sakyasi through the CB radio. And that was all he ever heard. He never knew where she was buried. He never knew what happened to her in the last minutes of her life. He was never able to have a sense of what... Uh, Um, you know, where she had ended up. And then the interesting thing to me when I was interviewing Sakiasi about this was that he said something really intriguing, which was that every year he would go back 
to the place where the boat would come to bring supplies and to pick up passengers for their journey down south to the hospitals. Every year he would go back to the loading zone and just listen and listen to try to see if he could hear something, anything, any little detail, any, any bit of a story about his grandmother. And I got really confused because it sounded to me like he thought his grandmother might still be alive. And no, 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 it was clear that uh, she, he had received this news that she had died. And so the question for me became, what was he listening for? What did he want? What did he desire? And why was the fact of her death not sufficient? And so from that, I tried, I, I, I use this question, this, this idea of the image as something that can hold open this space of what it is that he might have wanted, something that was able to go beyond this binary between dead and alive, because obviously that wasn't satisfying to him. He wanted something that would, in some sense, connect him to his grandmother. One of the, you've brought up in ways that might not be, um, Mm. the importance of which might not be obvious to listeners, but I want to just kind of highlight and throw into relief some of the elements, no, 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 I mean, just some of the elements that are, that will kind of lead us to the next thing that I'd like to um, ask you about, which is the importance of the fact that he was listening, right? Mm -hmm. He got a call through a CD Mm -hmm. radio. This mm-hmm. importance of, of listening and the sonic and voicing mm-hmm. becomes very, very, very clear here. So mm-hmm. you mentioned in this chapter that one of the things that um, was happening, or at least one of the reports um, that um, uh, come in, is that Kaljak is making the voices of animals mm-hmm. as she dies, right? Mm-hmm. The importance of voice and voicing, and this mm-hmm. is something that continues to be important um, throughout mm-hmm. the, the book, but certainly the next chapter. So you have, in, in both of these chapters, you introduce us to this super, super fascinating source, which is, um, I think, 1967 audio recordings mm-hmm. of Inuit of Arctic Canada mm-hmm. who were sending messages to mm-hmm. relatives who were in tuberculosis sanatoria mm-hmm. in southern Canada. So it, in mm-hmm. this time when this is happening, when Kaljak is experiencing this, um, between, right, in this period between mm-hmm. 1953 and 64, mm-hmm. apparently, like, approximately half right. the total population was institutionalized, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'll say that again for listeners, just mm-hmm. to make sure that mm-hmm. half the total population was institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So some of them, um, mm-hmm. you know, die in sanatoria, they're buried mm-hmm. in unmarked graves. Um, mm-hmm. And this be, this is part of a larger story, right, about these kinds mm-hmm. of um, uh, the tuberculosis and the, the epidemic sort of situating mm-hmm. the Canadian North as a kind of massive laboratory for transforming mm-hmm. Inuit into Canadian citizens. So mm-hmm. this is all the context, but the importance of these recordings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is, is so, for me, this was one of the most striking moments in the whole book, this yes. on this right. recording. Right, right, right. Yeah, so just to pick up on a couple of things you said, I mean, I, I think in 1953, I can't remember which year, but maybe it was 1957, but 
um, it's said that the largest community of Inuit was actually in the Hamilton Sanatorium. Oh and, and this was not all Inuit from the same community. They were from all different kinds of communities. But the communities at that time were very small and there were sort of 300 plus people collected in the sanatorium at that moment. And so it really... Um, you know, nobody was untouched by tuberculosis. Um, and also just to highlight that when I talk about anonymous care, this fact that Inuit were buried in unmarked graves is very important to me because I make the argument that Inuit were important to the Canadian state as long as they were alive and could be seen as live citizens on Canadian soil. And this had implications for Canadian sovereignty at the moment, at that moment, but also was part of the logic of biopolitics, keep these people alive. But once they were dead, you know, who they are, who they were really ceased to matter. Right. And so um, they were given a pauper's burial uh, in these unmarked graves in Hamilton that I've been to visit but then this um, this this tape that is so important to me, which is um, found in the Hamilton McMaster archives, and I read about it first in some of Frank Tester's work, and then I went because I really wanted to hear it. And so I went to the archives to find this tape, and I had it um, digitized because at the time it would have been recorded on one of those huge reel-to-reel tapes. And what happened, and I've read in the archives about, you know, how much cut money one of these machine costs and what the disposition of the tapes would be and where they would keep the recorder. But they were, you know, getting a lot of flack for their treatment of the Inuit um, during this tuberculosis and many epidemic and many Inuit were writing to um, government officials. There had been a kind of expose in the newspaper about the treatment of Inuit. And so they really wanted to uh, try to do something about keeping Inuit better in, in touch with their relatives. And so they decided to you know, do this experiment of taking up this tape and recording um, relatives and bringing the tapes back to uh, people with tuberculosis in the sanatorium. Now, the I've only ever found one tape, and it's this one in the McMaster archive. And I, um, through my connections, through my sister-in-law, who is an Inuit woman, once I heard the tape, I... Within 24 hours, I knew I wanted to meet the people who were speaking on the tape. And within 24 hours, my sister-in-law had put me in touch with the descendants, sometimes the people who were actually speaking on the tape, and sometimes their descendants in the community of Arctic Bay. And on the tape, there were people from other communities too, but I was particularly interested in the messages from Arctic Bay. And so... One of the things that I learned in my future research and the research that I then conducted was that I'm not convinced that that tape ever reached the people in hospital. And, um, you know, uh, one of the men that I interviewed in Arctic Bay was a small child and it was his father who was speaking to him on the tape and he has no recollection of ever hearing the tape. So 
the status of these messages, the uncertainty, of course, that the Inuit must have felt about whether or not this message would ever reach its intended um, recipient was really clear. Um, The other thing that was so striking to me when I first heard the tapes uh, was the repeated assertion that I don't know what to say. And although, you know, partly it's an unfamiliar format, I, I take it as something more important than that. I took it also to mean, uh, what is there to say? What could possibly be said to a relative who left, you know, and you haven't heard from him or her since, you're not sure whether he or she will ever return, you're not sure what's happening to this son, daughter, mother, Um, and what is there actually to say? And I think the kind of pain of that dislocation of the really, really sort of vast distances (laughs) between say, Arctic Bay and the Hamilton Sanatorium, both figuratively and literally, and is encapsulated in some way in that statement. Um, I don't know what to say. You know, I don't have anything to say. But the other really interesting thing to me was that so many people lent their voices to the project and spoke onto the tape, even in the face of this sense of, I just don't know what could I possibly say to this child of mine who I dream of having with me again, but I I don't know if I ever will. I have no way of sort of visualizing what's happening to this person. So I became really interested in the way that words um, are sent out, sent out across this, um, you know, vast expanse and, in some way, the Inuit didn't know if they would reach their um, intended recipient, and neither do we now, now know whether they did. And it really forces us to think, because they keep saying, I don't know what to say, it forces us to move away from thinking only about the content of the message or the meaning of the words in the message, and to think more about the gesture that's contained in the message, the gesture of putting into voice the possibility that this other person is alive, the invoking of the other person through the voice, through speaking to someone, through speaking to, um, in in some sense, I want to say to speaking to the spirits, you know, because there was no certainty about whether the other person was alive or dead, and yet people still spoke. They still lent their voices to the project. And this, I, sorry. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, it it makes sense and it excites me because I think this way of framing it is also something that, um, again, we can use to kind of thread through the rest of the book, right? So Mm -hmm. this idea of kind of invoking Mm -hmm. um, a person through speaking, Mm -hmm. sending words out of sort of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, voicing and listening is something that 
Um, absolutely, we can see in the chapter on the suicide hotline, right? mm-hmm. which we mm-hmm. won't talk too much about, John, just so that we can you know talk about some of the other chapters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This idea of um, you know speaking to and, and hearing and listening. Um, mm-hmm. You also sort of mention in chapter four, which we can talk about again. Um, or which we which we'll talk about now um, the kind of the importance of invoking and calling mm-hmm. and um, in terms of naming right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if in the first part of the book we looked at um, these sort of certain forms of care and in the in the last part of the first part of the book we also are introduced to a number of the Inuit youth with mm-hmm. whom um, you worked during your field work and the sort of mm-hmm. the, the challenges and, the, and how they were living many mm-hmm. of those youth um, form. Um, a large part of the images and the stories and then mm-hmm. sort of who we we are living with in this book as mm-hmm. we live with you and mm-hmm. your um, the people you're working with in this second part. Mm-hmm. In chapter four, um, this is manifest, at least in part, through the idea of naming mm-hmm. and a name soul mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. So can you, I'll just kind of, you know, throw mm-hmm. the ball back to you. Um, can you talk about that sort of, mm-hmm. what is a name soul and, What's important mm-hmm. for us to understand about that, to understand the work it's doing here in this part of the book? Mm-hmm. So the Inuit word attic, which I um, translate as sort of the life of the name or the name soul, uh, is important to, was important to all of the Inuit youth that I worked with. And so what happens in practice now, among, you know, among the people that I worked with, among the youth and their families, is that when a child is born, it is given the name of someone who has recently died in the community. And how you would know who amongst the people who have recently died, um, whose name you would give to a newborn child varies. So in one of the instances that I recount, this is the story of Sila and how she gets her name. Her mother has a dream. And in the dream, she's amaking, which means to carry in the hood of one's coat, uh, carry a baby in the hood of one's coat. So she's amaking a um, elder named Ituk who has recently died. And so she realizes when she's pregnant at the time that she has this dream and she realizes when she wakes up that this baby's name is going to be Ituk because that's the way in which she'll be able to amak Ituk. Um, And so once a child is given the name of this, of an ancestor, uh, everyone refers to that child by the kin term they would have used for the previous name um, holder, for the uh, person who had that name before the baby. So if you're named after uh, my grandfather, I would call you grandfather. I would always refer to you, Carla, as grandfather whether or not you're male or female, whether or not you're younger or older than Mm -hmm. I am. And so it's understood that the life force has traveled from that previous name holder to the present name holder. And so in this way, um, you know, selves are not as discreet as we might think. And also life 
cannot so easily be contained in that notion of life itself that we're so familiar with uh, in biopolitics, right? Um, so, the, you know, I'm interested in the way that this um, life force continues to be important to the youth that I worked with and the way that they, um, you, you know, take it up in important, tr- tr- funny, and also tragic ways, right? It's, uh, it, it, it threads through their lives. It's constant. It's not like something that I have to ask them about in an interview and then they tell me about this old traditional thing about naming. No, it's constantly in our conversations, right? I mean, you actually talk, I think, late in this chapter about sort of thinking about the life of the name mm-hmm. as a melancholic life, mm-hmm. sort of living mm-hmm. the, and, and what the political possibilities are of mm-hmm. living mournfully. Mm-hmm. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Because that's also yeah. really interesting here. So I'm really interested in, I've always been really uh, interested in Freud's notion of mourning, and it's the related concept, melancholia. And so earlier in his life, Freud saw mourning as uh, a sort of healthy process where you would divest yourself of your um, connections or libidinal attachments to the person who has died. And he saw melancholia as pathological, as this state where you can't let go of the um, attachments that you've formed. And I've always been really interested. And then later in life, he kind of revised this, you know, as as the war was looming after he had lived through World War One and the death of his daughter. He revised this and um, came to see mourning as closer to something like melancholia that perhaps we never fully let go of the people we have loved. And I think there's a way in which um, Inuit naming practices make this manifest in the sense that you never let go of that loved person. You love that loved person in its new incarnation, in some sense, in the new child. And so I had a um, really good friend who I was, while I was there, whose mother passed away. And so when her son was born, she gave her son her mother's name. And, you know, I would hear her, you know, cooing over the child saying, Ananakuru, Ananakuru, which is my dear little mother, my dear little mother. And her father would um, notice the way that the baby would stay, get up really early on the days when he was going to go hunting because it was as if the baby, who was also his w- wife, was looking after him. And so there's a way in which we don't lose those connections to the dead. They're ever-present in our daily lives, and they're reactivated with every new life. And so there is no sense of this kind of um, extreme cutting off of all ties to the dead that uh, Freud once thought was healthy or what was, you know, to be uh, uh, attempted in life. 
But it's also, you know, the contrast between this way of thinking about life and death and the way that the Canadian state sort of disregarded the lives of Inuit once they were dead, right? Kaujak is unloaded. Nobody knows where her body is. Nobody tells anybody the story of her death. Nobody um, cares very much. And then, you know, the bodies of the Inuit in the unmarked graves, too, the contrast is is really striking, and I think that's where the kind of um, political import comes. What if we were to imagine life, um, or maybe not even imagine, but just recognize that life actually is more <laughs> like um, the named soul would have us see it? How then would we um, care for others? How then would we... Um, govern ourselves and others. And in fact, the um, sixth chapter of the book actually considers a form of care, right? Sort of how (laughs) we might care for others in terms of what you call song, right? Mm -hmm. Just kind of continue um, Mm -hmm. following this thread of the importance of listening and voicing and and speaking Mm -hmm. um, to one another. So this chapter looks at the story, among other things, of a 21-year-old Inuit youth here called Paulusi, mm-hmm. who's charged with arson, and then there's a, a very um, kind of a very moving uh, and very touching sort of uh, walk through the the kind of tragedy of his situation mm-hmm. in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you talk here about your field work, right? Working mm-hmm. alongside Inuit youth, including him, on a project on the subject of suicide. Mm-hmm. And this kind of takes us into this larger concept of this idea of song, mm-hmm. and the importance of forms of recognition. Right? Mm-hmm. So here um, you call song a kind of form of recognition that does not depend on knowing the truth about mm-hmm. or fixing the identity of mm-hmm. another person. So mm-hmm. as we kind of come to um, toward the end of our conversation together, mm-hmm. can, can you open up that idea um, for listeners, this idea of song as a form of care? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's really interesting and, and revisiting this story of Paulusi. Um, a couple of days ago, I met an undergraduate student who had read the book and she was really excited to meet me because, not because, but she was really excited to meet me and she said, but did, so did he do it? So did Paulusi do it? And I thought that was really interesting because we do, we do, we so want to be sure about something like that, you know. And that was precisely the difficulty I got into vis-a-vis the other people I was working with. So after he had been... um accused of arson, even jailed, uh, you know, arraigned and, and, and jailed for a, a time. Um, people became convinced that he had done it and convinced that seeing him in any other way than as criminal made me or anyone else who saw him in that way, also criminal, right? And so what I'm trying to open up in this chapter 
is the possibility of recognizing someone else or interpolating someone else if we can get away from the strict notion of interpolation as interpolating someone into a subject position where their identity is fixed. Um, if we can take the call that is part of our notion of interpolation and say, is it possible that human beings are beings that call one another into being? And so in that sense, we are beings that depend on the other in order to be because we depend upon someone else to recognize us. And I think this became clear in that chapter on the name where I talk about, you know, the possibility of infanticide in Inuit communities and how it was never practiced if a name had been given. And so there's a way in which our physical survival depends upon being recognized, being given a name, being called into human community. Um, our physical life itself depends on this kind of call. But I'm just asking in this chapter if we can open up that call a little bit and not see it only in its sort of negative aspect, which tends to be about, uh, you know, interpolating someone into a subject position that he or she doesn't want to be in or, um, you know, all of the kind of associations that interpolation has with hate speech, et cetera, et cetera, all of which I think I document in the early parts of the book, the way that Inuit were constantly interpolated into positions of, you know, being a statistic or being a, citizen either dead or alive and that was the only option but in this last chapter I'm trying to open that up and say is there a way of calling the other and, and sometimes I think this is still just a question is there a way of calling the other where we don't require that other to be something in particular where we allow that other person to be uh, whatever it is that he or she is or will be and you know, I think this is hard. I think it, it goes against a lot of our theorizing in anthropology. It goes against, um, you know, many, it goes against the grain. Let's just say that. But I want to, I want to um, notice that there may be these moments, however brief, these kind of flashes where we do that to one another. And so in this book, I both recorded moments where other people did that for me, sort of recognize me without requiring me to be something in particular. And also this moment where I was, you know, in a relationship with Paul Lucy and was not deciding about whether he had done it or not done it. And so in some sense was allowing him, I and the other people in our group were allowing him to enter into the, that our, um, our social into the social without uh, deciding ahead of time who he was. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and I think so. Thinking about this as calling and also listening. 
mm-hmm. to one another. Um, right. Right. To, without doing that. I think it's really, really important. And it, in this chapter, you kind of um, remind us of where we began as well with the, mm-hmm. the throat singing and with mm-hmm. the king listening as mm-hmm. a way of, I think, really, really nicely bringing this all together and also looking outward mm. um, to what might come next. Mm, thank you. So as we, um, so unfortunately, Elisa, yeah. we've come to the end of our time. There's so much in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. I mean, including, mm-hmm. um, we didn't even get to a really wonderful chapter called Why Two Clocks, mm-hmm. right? sort of named mm-hmm. after the caption of this image in a government publication, which is this Inuit tent with two clocks side by side, in which um, I think you're really nicely exploring ideas of temporality and mm-hmm. sort of coexistence of temporalities and um, mm-hmm. embodied in this image of two clocks. And that's just one of many, many, many things. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular, um, though, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Hmm. No, I don't think so. I think we, I thank you so much for your questions. I think they drew out all of the important parts of the book. Yeah. My pleasure. And, I, and I'll say for listeners, there's, there's really so much that um, we only very, very briefly touched on. And so I hope that listeners will have a chance to, to look at the book and, and, and read it um, and meet some of these amazing images and stories and people and selves that you're introducing us to. So now that the book is out, Lisa, and congratulations, I think it's an amazing and and super, super thoughtful work. What's next for you? What's currently inspiring? Mm, Well, I've got a few things on the go, but one thing that I'm really excited about is um, I'm working on a, a short film using some of the archival images that I encountered during this research. So archival film images from doctors who went up north on the CD how to treat Inuit patients, um, archival images of Inuit in the Hamilton Sanatorium, and of course also the um, tapes that I that we talked about at length during the interview. And so I am really interested in this possibility of this possibility that, you know, Wittgenstein raises for us, but also Freud in different ways, and Benjamin, that perhaps we act, we often think in images, mm-hmm. and that that form of thinking is not always um, valued or given pride of praise, place in academia. And so I'm just excited about the possibility of, um, you know, working with that film as a way to, you know, think with and in and through images. That's I guess a, that's it. That's amazing. So let's, um, so keep me posted on that. Mm-hmm. That also sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Lisa, thank you so much. It's been such thank a you. pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your questions. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.